everybody, and welcome to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploited cinema. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, and joining me as always is my doppelganger, Kangabanger, from down under, Mr. Brody Kane. Howdy, howdy, mother lickers. And the second man on the grass, you know, Mr. Slick Nick. Hola, lovely people. Today, we have a doozy of an episode, but first, it's time for your slice of life. Brody, how goes it? It all goes well, mate. It all goes bloody well. Um, I'm actually really struggling to think what I've fucking done this week. Maybe I should have wrote that shit down. Um, I can't even think. Yeah, memory shit. Um, oh, I went and saw the new Candyman this week. That was interesting. I won't dive too much into it. Um, but yeah, like got really mixed mixed feelings about it to be honest. Just because I love the original so much. Um, yeah, I do sort of like what they've done with the actual concept of it. But there are a few moments in the film that. There was a couple of themes that were a bit on the nose. I won't mention them. I'll let you check them out for yourselves. And uh, But, yeah, I mean, the acting and all that was good throughout the film and the violence and shit. And, but, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Very, very mixed feelings about it. Other than that, yeah, working flat out as always. Um, I don't think I bought any new Blu-rays this week. Wait for a package. That's all you're doing. <laughs> Pretty much. Wait for TJ's package. Um, and, well, he nearly – I'm trying to save fucking money, right? And I'm talking to TJ last night, and he's like, oh, dude, fucking Synapse Films have got a sale on. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so, I have up on my other monitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I go over there, and I'm like, fuck, that's cheap, that's cheap. Oh, Red Scorpion. I've never seen this before. Starts the trailer out, and I'm like, of course I'm going to fucking buy it. Of course. <laughs> and then it even got to the point where we were, me and TJ were watching the trailer for Red Scorpion 2, <laughs> and, and it was just... Oh, yeah. Out of fucking hole. whack. Yeah. It's out of whack. <laughs> but I'd, it, it sounds like something we'd do for the show. Oh, yeah. Least, so. Fair but enough. Other than that, nothing <laughs> nothing much else down this way, gentlemen. How about you, Slick Nick? Well, I haven't been doing a whole ton. Um, still trying to work my way through Boardwalk Empires as much as I can. Uh, just kind of hard to get through the whole thing because there's five seasons of that shit. It's just so good. Um, ah, really the only like new movie I think I've seen this week. That's not really new, but it's the first time I've seen it. I watched uh, Sweet Virginia with John Bernthal uh, about four years ago or something. I think that one came out. He's like a retired radio uh, rodeo star owns a motel. Uh, and it's basically just him kind of hanging around this town while a hitman goes and starts killing a whole bunch of people <laughs> around him. Uh, except it's John Bernthal not being a rugged badass for once, and instead he's just being really like shy, timid dude with a nerve disorder. Interesting to watch. Not fantastic, but not bad at all. Um, really, the only physical media I think I've bought is I uh, ordered a CD <laughs> for the first time in forever. I'm a little bit bummed. So I bought uh, it's Burn Piano Island Burn by the Blood Brothers, which has a fantastic album cover which is why I bought the CD and I ordered it and I waited forever because it came from Germany. It wasn't too expensive, but it got here and it's a fucking jewel case with the CD with no fucking cover on it. <laughs> so Random. yeah, it has the like little side sleeve thing and it's got the back with the track list. It does not have the front. It's just a clear jewel case and it, it kind of pisses me off a little bit. So I'm going to have to, yeah, I'm going to have to uh, 
like I can tell it's the actual CD. It's got unless they really went through the work to print all the copyright information. It's the actual CD. They just took the fucking album art for some reason out and just sent it to me. So we're either gonna have long one. But yeah, so I was say that's that's really all I've been up to this week. Uh, it's all I've, I've really watched, all I've bought. Uh, other than that, I've just been kind of working. Uh, we had an event on Wednesday, so I ended up working from eight in the morning until eight o'clock at night, which was super fun. I totally didn't look like ragged shit the moment I got home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, other than that, it's been a pretty uh, pretty good week. What you've been up to, Mr. Bossman? Hey, yo! You know, I've just been watching movies and all that fucking shit, man. Watch Striking Distance with Bruce Willis. Fucking crazy-ass movie. Brody? Oh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to say something, but I'll backtrack a bit. And then, uh, fuck, mm. what else? Uh, Strike Commando 2 from Severn Films. I watched that. That was fucking awesome. What else did I watch? This Predator 2. I watched Predator Yeah. Two. Hell yeah. Wanted to watch a Gary Busey film. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There no, you it's go. fair. <laughs> point break, man. <laughs> yeah, but uh, kind of all this week was just kind of prepping to uh, start season three of this podcast and everything and kind of get things moving. I was doing some editing this week, some publishing of other podcasts, just trying to keep the network afloat, trying to keep things moving like the well-oiled machine that it is. And really, I'm just excited to talk about this film. And this film is Scanners from 1981. Living among us, there is a new breed of human. They come not from the future or from the past, not from space or from hell. Born of men and women, they are indistinguishable from you and me, but they are more than human. They are scanners, and their thoughts can kill. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. Rated R. Directed by David Cronenberg, who also did Shivers from 1975, The Brood in 1979, The Dead Zone in 1983, and Eastern Promises in 2007. Writers David Cronenberg, who did Dead Ringers in 1988, Naked Lunch in 1991, Crash in 1996, and Cosmopolis in 2012. Cinematographer Mark Irwin, who did films such as Night School in 1981, RoboCop 2 in 1990, Freddy Got Fingered in 2001, and Grandma's Boy in 2006. Adios, turd nuggets. Music by Howard Shore, who did Videodrome in 1983, The Fly in 1986, The Silence of the Lambs in 1991, and Panic Room in 2002. Special effects by Gary Zeller, who did Dawn of the Dead in 1978, The Capture of Bigfoot in 1979, Amityville 2, The Possession in 1982, and White Hot in 1988. Producers Claude Perrault, Pierre David, and Victor Slotnicki. Costume designers Delphine White, who worked on Visiting Hours in 1982, Alfred Hitchcock Presents from 1987 to 1989, In the Mouth of Madness from 1994, and Bulletproof Monk in 2003. We have a budget of 4.1 million Canadian, and this film starred Jennifer O'Neill as Kim Obrist, who was in For the Love of Ivy in 1968, Summer of 42 in 1971, Caravans in 1978, in The Corporate Ladder in 1997. Stephen Lack as Cameron Vale, who starred in The Montreal Maine in 1974, Perfect Strangers in 1984, Dead Ringers in 1988, and Ernest Fall in Hawaii in 2002. Patrick McHuhan as Dr. Paul Ruth, who starred in Passage Home in 1955, The Moonshine War in 1970, Braveheart in 1995, and Treasure Planet in 2002, 
as the voice of Billy Bone. Lawrence Dane as Braden Keller, who starred in Happy Birthday to Me in 1981, Bride of Chucky in 1998, King's Ransom in 2005, and Undercover Grandpa in 2017. The legendary Michael Ironside as Daryl Revick. You may know him from Top Gun in 1986, Total Recall in 1990, Starship Troopers in 1997, Do You Want to Live Forever, and Terminator Salvation in 2009. Robert A. Silverman as Benjamin Pierce who starred in Prom Night in 1980, Naked Lunch in 1991, Waterworld in 1995, and Jason X. Little, uh, for fans of horror here, Neil Affleck played a medical student in the mall. You may know him as Axel from My Bloody Valentine in 1981. And Leon Herbert played a hazmat suit worker. You know him as Boggs from Alien 3 from 1992. David Fincher's first film. Plot. The children of a group of women who took an experimental tranquilizer during their pregnancies the scanners are now adults and have become outcasts from society. But Daryl Reva decides to create an army of scanners to take over the world. The only person who can stop him is his brother Cameron Vale, who wants to forget that he was ever a scanner. Awards! So it won the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Film Awards in 1981. Best Makeup, Dick Smith, Winner Winner, Chicken Dinner, and it tied another Dick Smith film for Altered States in 1980. Best International Film? Winner, winner, chicken dinner, and best special effects, Gary Zeller, nominee. The Genie Awards in 1982, best motion picture, Victor Slotnicki, Pierre David, and Claude Hero, nominee. Best performance by an actor in a supporting role, Michael Ironside, nominee. Best achievement in direction, David Cronenberg, nominee. Best screenplay original, David Cronenberg, nominee. Best achievement in art direction, Carol Spire, nominee. Best Achievement in Costume Design, Delphine White, nominee. Best Achievement in Film Editing, Ronald Sanders, nominee. And Best Achievement in Overall Sound, Peter Burgess, nominee. Lastly, Fans Fordo in 1983, Best Film, David Cronenberg, Winner Winner, Chicken Dinner. Boys, let's get physical. So we got two releases. This week, and one is from Criterion that released March 27, 2018, and it runs 103 minutes, not rated, and it features a newly restored 2K digital film transfer supervised by David Cronenberg with Uncrest Memorial soundtrack, The Scanner's Way, a new documentary by Michael Lennick on the film special effects featuring interviews with Cronenberg's collaborators, Mental Saboteur. A new interview with actor Ironside. The Ephemeral Diaries, a 2012 interview with actor and artist Stephen Lack. Excerpt from the 1981 interview with Cronenberg on the CBC's The Bob McLean Show. New restored 2K digital transfer of Stereo 1969, Cronenberg's first feature film, which Brody has the Arrow release of. Trailer and radio spots. English subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing. Plus an essay by critic Kim Newen. New cover by Connor Williamson. Region A Lock. And for the second release, we have one from Second Sight Films. It runs 103 minutes, and it's rated BBFC 18. Nick, what does that stand for? The British Board of Film Classification. You must be 18 to see it. And that released on December 4th, 2013, and it features My Art Keeps Me Sane, an interview with star Stephen Lack, The Eyes of Scanners, interview with cinematographer Mark Irwin, The Chaos of Scanners, interview with executive producer Pierre David, Exploding Brains and Poppin' Veins, interviews with makeup effects artist Stephen Duplass, and Bad Guy Dane, interview with actor Lawrence Dane, Region B Locked. Boys, additional information. 
Right, so to kick this off, I was able to find this interview with uh, David Cronenberg talking about scanners at the Riff Masterclass from 2015, which you can see on YouTube. And he basically quotes uh, by saying that Scanners is most definitely the difficult film that I had ever made in my career. And one of the reasons was that in those days in Canada, sometimes the money was there before the movie was there. It seems strange now, but there were tax write-offs. So in October, the accountants for dentists and doctors would say to their clients that you need to write off your tax because you've just made too much money. So then they would invest in your movie, but it would only come at the end of the year. So suddenly I'm looking at producers saying, do we have any ideas for a movie? And I would say, yeah, there's these underground people that can read minds and they would be like, great, we, we are shooting this in two weeks. But the downside was that you had to make the movie and, of course, you were totally unprepared. So we started to shoot in Montreal, which was very cold at the time, and we were completely disorganised. While everyone else would go to lunch, I would stay on set writing what we were going to shoot that afternoon. And it's definitely not a good way to make movies. I learned a lot because while we were editing the movie, sometimes you would see a character and you would cut away to another character to which the off-camera character kept talking. But that was dialogue that I would write as we were editing the movie. However, it did turn out to be the number one film in North America, which was my first number one film for some reason, and it was very successful. In addition to the production difficulties, Cronenberg did cite additional frustrations in working with certain members of the cast on the film. Uh, particularly, he did have difficulties arising from Patrick McGowan uh, and Jennifer O'Neill, who reportedly found it hard to work together and would, and would often antagonize one another on set, though it, he never said exactly what they did. <laughs> So basically, uh, the rest of my notes uh, come from that Second Sight Films uh, special features that have those interviews. And this interview is with lead actor Stephen Lack. And he goes on to talk about working with Cronenberg, uh, saying he would give me the slightest direction. For example, try not to bounce when walking. So I would ask numerous questions throughout the movie and wonder, though, as somebody who is pretty much suppressed uh, unreleased, but when the time comes to the release of that mind, luckily it was during a reshoot and I had the opportunity to rest. Um, one of the things I found, the American record label, RSO Records, founded in 1973 and featuring artists such as the Bee Gees, Cream, and Eric Clapton, uh, actually paid for a product placement in the film. Uh, so this does appear in the form of the float in the record store above the burning van uh, during the crash scene where it flips on its side, catches on fire. It's the one that melts in the fire as it's coming down, unfortunately. Uh, by the time the film had finished shooting and was released, the company had all but gone out of business, only fully going defunct a couple years later in 1983. But I believe they'd already declared bankruptcy by the point uh, this came out. I declare bankruptcy! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, good. <laughs> so, basically... <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> You've derailed us. So, makes it so much better because I'm pretty sure my coworkers just watched this episode the other day. They've all been watching The Office in the fucking break room and never watch. <laughs> <laughs> I have real beer. <laughs> Go ahead, buddy. But yeah, fuck. <laughs> right. So Stephen Lack talking about the ending 
Uh, the ending had a final battle, and it wasn't dramatically presented. It wasn't blended with the special effects, so it was rather abrupt. So what they did was that they had a couple of months to realise that this is not working, and they developed the battle scene with Ironside and myself. Then they brought in Dick Smith to do the special effects, and then they shot that battle scene over a three- to four-day period. So I actually also did find um, an interview with Stephen Lack, uh, though this one was with the magazine Film Comment uh, back in 2014. Um, He actually described there was an accident that occurred um, early on during the filming. So he says, uh, uh, there we were the first day of scanners. Uh, and they had me get into this 18-wheel truck with four gear shift levers, have me drive it into the shot. It was horrifying. Uh, I had never drove such a thing, and I was pretty disoriented. We were set up on a feeder road to the highway, and all the camera crew and all the staff and everyone were there. And some car on the highway slowed down to gawk at a truck on the highway, rammed them from behind. Uh, there was a death and sirens, and the whole crew jumped out over and stormed the fence to help out. I was given a slight reprieve of an hour to figure out the gears. <laughs> pressure. They literally saw someone die, and they gave him an hour to go, all right, man, take a break, and then we'll, we'll put you back in the truck. <laughs> Whatever works, man. I swear. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Considering the movie they were shooting. I wonder you didn't end up shooting that. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah. That's probably when Crash comes in, lighted in the crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. David was standing off to the side, saw that, and went, guys, I have an idea. <laughs> he might have had a slightest little erection at the time. Yeah, was just like, like a oh, half going on. And he's just like, oh. <laughs> Uh, David, we you need help. <laughs> I love you, and if you're listening to this, I do apologize. Come on, oh, no. <laughs> no, I, I was saying there's the guy standing next to him, and he's got the chub looking at the guy dead. He goes, David, you might need to. Uh, <laughs> we might, you might need to talk to someone. <laughs> so Stephen Lack working with the infamous Dick Smith. So working with Dick Smith was incredibly intense. Uh, Didn't have a great sense of humor, and that's okay because he must focus. He's so involved in what he is doing. He was showing me a progression of heads that were made smaller and larger than might have been for the film Altered States. The process that he did to replicate something then to expand it just shows how much he was involved in the process, which was great. So at one point uh, in early 2007, a remake of the first Scanners film uh, was announced. There were sequels, though Cronenberg never really imagined that there would be initially. Um, uh, it was announced that it was set to be directed by Darren Lynn Bousman. Bousman? Bousman? Yeah. Uh, he's the director for Saw 2, 3, and 4. Uh, and was planned to be released in October of 2008. However, uh, Bousman stated in an interview in 2013 that the remake remake <laughs> never came to fruition as they could not gain Cronenberg's blessing to go through with the making of the film. And by 2008, most of the cast and crew had just basically left entirely to go work on other projects. Last Good. They should not have remade it, especially not in the, uh, the, the film era of 2007. They should not have remade it. <laughs> Did you class that as the darkening? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank fuck they didn't make it. Mm. Wouldn't have been able to see a goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the darkening. Yeah. So we have cinematographer Mark Irwin talking about his time on Scanners. So the money for the film had come crashing into place before the script was in place. So we ended up in Montreal, like I mentioned before, without a script, but with a crew hired. And the first day of shooting was like, what are we going to shoot? 
oh, car rigs. Oh, okay. So we would light up these cars and tow them all over Montreal and David would write stuff and keep rewriting the script until it was approved. What was weird was that as the script was being written, we would shoot those scenes every night. Go to the lab, screen dailies, go on a location scout at midnight, approve those locations. The art department would dress the location because they were getting the script a day before and then we would show up the next day and shoot the film. That's fucking nuts. That is insane that they that, that was the production. I can see why he's like, man, fuck working on this movie. <laughs> he's like, I love the movie, but man, working on it was shit. I can't blame him. I cannot blame him for thinking that. Um, so this is one I'd actually I actually knew about this story uh beforehand, but I had never made the connection to it in the movie. Uh so the use of the drug ephemeral on pregnant women to create more scanners in the film bears a striking resemblance and is possibly partly inspired by a real-life event some 20 years or so before the film, uh, in which thalidomide, it was called, uh, had been being prescribed to pregnant women in the late 50s in order to alleviate morning sickness, um, but was basically recalled and became a whole big scandal, um, especially in the U.S., because it often resulted in birth defects and other related issues. Uh, and this was like a whole thing up into the 60s. And I think it partly had to do with why uh, later on um, quaaludes, which were marketed uh, to pregnant women and like housewives and stuff, basically all got outlawed as well. Fucking quaaludes! I think Donnie's got something to say right now. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Irwin talks about the, sh- uh, the head explosion. We ended up shooting in this three-wall set in a warehouse just for this explosion. The first day, it didn't blow up properly. The second take didn't work, so special effects artist Gary Zeller said to everybody, get in your trucks, close the windows, but roll the fucking cameras. He got behind actor Louis Del Grande with a double-barrel shot. Sorry, fuck. He got behind actor Louis Del Grande's body double, with a double barrel shotgun and blew his head to fucking pieces. It was just insane with brain matter going everywhere. The next day we saw the daily and it was perfect. Not sure of all the stuff they put in there, but it looked incredible. That it did. Um, so in the earlier mentioned uh, film comment interview with Stephen Lack, uh, Lack describes the reasoning behind his sort of deadpan performance neutral line delivery uh, as Cameron Bale. Uh, he says, my deadpan performance was deliberate. Not only was Scanners not rehearsed, but it wasn't written. David was coming in with pink, blue, and yellow pages for the day for the version of the script that we were doing, and he was working on it right there. As a result, I had to deal with the dialogue in such a way that I was not reacting to things because the information had not been given to my character in the linear progression of the story. If you chop it up and look at it, 50% of my dialogue is not an assertion of anything, but rather a question. You called me a scanner. What does that mean? You're part of an organization. Who are you? Everything is a freaking question. I would say to David on the set, how are we playing this? Alice in Wonderland? And then it specifies that he says this part in a Valley Girl accident. So, um, hi, you're a caterpillar, but you've got a hookah? Like, why? And what are you smoking? What does that mean? You're a butterfly? (laughs) Because there was no rehearsal time to develop the character of Vale, we decided to neutralize any extremes. And that way, things could be readjusted in post without having to compromise because of an inappropriate nuance. Why can I picture Cronenberg saying that, like that? That was Stephen Lack. 
Yeah, but I mean, like the direct. Like, for some reason, I can just picture Cronenberg saying that. The Valley Girl saying. accent. Well, did he write yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, you're gonna go. Hi. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely can. But yeah, it, it was it was fun to to find that as well because I did notice that while watching the movie, I was like, man, he really just kind of just says lines. There's really not much of an inflection to what he's saying. It's like listening to the band Cake. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So, after seeing the head explosion, producer Pierre David was incredibly worried about getting an X rating for the film. He demanded that they do it again with less score factor. The special effects crew made three more heads to explode, but deliberately sabotaged them so that the first head explosion that we see in the film would remain. Very clever, clever gentlemen. Very clever. Indeed. Uh, so, Scanners. Being one of the more contemporary Cronenberg films, at least of the time, uh, it was lacking in the high amount of sexual content that had characterized his earlier films of the 70s, such as Rabid or The Brood or Shivers, I believe was also mentioned, uh, became David's highest grossing film. Uh, and it remained in that position for at least five years until the release of The Fly in 1986, for good reason. <laughs> I honestly thought Videodrome would have been up there. That's what I kind of thought too. James Woods is really big. Mm. Like yeah, I would, especially De- Deborah Harry, the singer of Blondie. Oh yeah, Debbie Harry. Like, Hell yeah. Yeah, she was shining. So makeup artist Stephen Dupuis. I think I said that right. Did I say that right, Mister Bowser? Yep. Is it Dupuis? Dupuis or Dupuis? You, I. We're not French. My my name may be French, but I am not. <laughs> nice. And my name may be Czech, but I am also not. Exactly. So, <laughs> uh, du- Dupi, du- Dupuy, 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 So, so makeup artist Stephen Dupuy talks about scanners. I remember taking a cast of Stephen Lack in my loft, and this was the first time I had ever seen this. But he could put clear lenses on his eyes. They covered the entire eyeball to which we could take a cast of his head with his eyes open so they could explode to which you see throughout the film's fantastic final battle. So um, when Cronenberg wrote the original screenplay for the movie uh, back in 76, uh, it was not the full script. This was just kind of the screenplay um, lending to, again, why he was actually writing it as they were making it. Uh, It was intended to be a much darker story, actually. Uh, fun thing, the protagonist's name was originally supposed to be Harley Quinn. Uh, this was a coincidence. Batman character was not introduced until 1992. Um, though it is kind of funny that Michael Ironside would go to work for DC as well, uh, later on. Um, and initially, rather than accidentally causing a seizure as he does in the final product, because it was meant to be so much darker, it was actually supposed to start with him purposefully telepathically assault- assaulting a woman on the subway. Uh, the overall tone was also meant to be a futuristic spy thriller with the government hiring, uh, who would become Vale, um, and a group of scanners to infiltrate and stop a corporation called Cytodyne uh, that later became Consec uh, as the movie was being rewritten. Fucking A! Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of glad they didn't make him a complete fucking psychopath in the final product. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the burnt up Stephen Lack dummy, which you see at the end of the film, was a plastic biology skeleton. And um, makeup artist Stephen Dupois says, we took some paper and dough 
to which you would then pack the dough around it. David Smith's son was there, and he was there basically taking a flame torch to the dough and baking the thing. They they basically worked endless, endlessly for that final scene, and it definitely shows on the screen. Yes, it does. Indeed it does. It actually looks really cool. Um, So in the final shot, speaking of... Uh, the the dead body there uh in the original shot of cameron vale's body deteriorating during the fight with revic as he's like pulling pieces and stuff off of himself vale's head was supposed to explode into a giant burst of sparks uh so they actually did film that um it was ultimately cut from the film but production stills do survive from it so you can see at least pictures of like the head exploding into sparks uh and actor Stephen lack actually kept the prosthetic head for himself after filming and wrapped for the production it didn't say if he still had it by the time he was interviewed in 2014 but i'd like to imagine he still does <laughs> oh, <hell yeah. laughs> okay boys let's talk about it <laughs> performance of the film brody take it away well i'm gonna have to go with the man himself michael ironside as daryl revok i think that he's just extremely intimidating in this film and he definitely graces our screen with how powerful he is especially seeing what he's capable of in the first five to ten minutes of the film um but then again you know michael ironside is always very intimidating in most of his films when he plays the bad guy. So, you know, um, to, to be on the poster for this film, like representing the film, definitely just showcases that his performance is superior. Um, yeah, I, I honestly think Michael Ironside is a fucking fantastic actor and he always brings his A game to every film that he's in. Um, but, yeah, I'd have to go with him. Um Something pretty astounding about his performance as well. Uh, it was one of the things that I noticed while doing the research for this movie, but it, it just didn't end up being one of the notes that I put in. He was actually originally only hired to do like two or so bit parts. They were only supposed to pay him like 4,500 bucks Canadian or something like that. Uh, and they ended up liking him so much that they just brought him back for more. Thank you, TJS. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I would say that definitely really good, especially considering just what they had originally brought him in for. Um, I think mine probably going to have to go with uh, Patrick McGowan as Dr. Ruth. Um, his was, it was pretty captivating just to watch him, especially during the scene uh whenever he's kind of having like the the freak out uh in the interrogation room and he's talking about like oh the first time it was an accident no and you kind of like see the weird idiosyncrasies between him and Revic that kind of gets explained uh whenever whenever Revic goes into detail with Vale of like you're my brother and Ruth is our dad kind of thing uh and it it definitely plays into that as well um so yeah I, I would say Revic is a close second for me um unfortunately I can't really go with Stephen Lax because of that sort of deadpan delivery for it but though as he explained like how it was shot and everything I can't really fault him for it because it was what he was directed to do so yeah but I'm, I'm gonna have to go with Patrick McGowan for it. I just think his was a, a pretty standout performance, honestly. It was really, really fun to watch him and just kind of see is he actually on Cameron's side? Is he working with Consec? Is he working with Revic? Anything like that? Because he just kind of kept that mysterious vibe through it. DJ, what was yours? I actually think Jennifer O'Neill did a very good job as Kim. I think that uh, her dialogue is delivered in a very effective way. I think some of those scenes 
where uh, it's just her and Steven interacting with each other. Extremely effective. I really love her character arc and uh, the, the, her discovery at the end. Two became one. It's just really, really awesome. And I really like uh, that scene where uh, she gets scanned by the baby. You could really oh, see yeah. the fear from her. She's like, what the fuck is going on? It even took me a second to kind of figure it out at first, too. I, w- I wasn't quite sure what was happening until she was like, it, it was not the woman in the lobby. I got scanned by your fucking unborn kid. dude. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> that baby. That ties into the second film, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I want to say it does. In the next film? So, I, one of the things I do remember seeing, um, because has a release of two and three. That's, um, yeah, one of the things that I did see uh, was whatever they were talking about. Cronenberg didn't intend for there to be sequels. He kind of just wanted it to be a sort of one and done project. Um, the main character of two is supposed to be, and this was according to, I think it was a bit of an interview I saw, but it, the main character of two is supposed to be Cameron Vale's son. And from what I saw in that, they went, and that's it. That's the, that's the only connection between the two films. It's just one is Cameron Vale's son, but I don't think it's the baby in the lobby because I don't don't think he's involved with that character which eh, just, that's why i don't really like it whenever the actual creator of the movie is like this is supposed to be a standalone thing a studio is like no 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 there's sequels now and you're just gonna have to make them because we pay you they are all worth something and we will touch on most of them at some point and that is a hint to one of our picks later this season i do i do mean though like with a concept like this there is so much to explore and expand on. I mean, it's begging to have sequels made in a sense. I mean, yes, oh, yeah. the director has wanted it as a one and done scenario, but fuck, like, right. so many unanswered questions. I mean, like, what, what would that? happen if, uh, like, a scanner was a cop? What would happen? We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, interesting point you bring up. <laughs> I wonder if that will be explored. <laughs> I mean, I, I, like, for that type of situation, you couldn't just have one film. You'd have to have one. Yeah. And the second one would have to yeah. be completely off its head. <laughs> it's like basket <laughs> case all over again, man. <laughs> Favorite- like, I don't dislike the sequel. Sorry. I, yeah. Well, basket case? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Like, yeah, dude. Like in basket awesome. case and the same. Oh, I was going to say malignant's awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's as a whole different like, episode. As I have the <laughs> fucking literal copy of Basket Case 2 in my hand yeah. right <laughs> Okay, favorite set piece, boys. I just went with the Bond. Consec um, is pretty fucking rad. Consec is pretty rad. Yes, yes. I, I love that early Controlling? 80s computer bank. Yup, the real to reels all going. Oh, oh, it's beautiful. I love it. I'm such a nerd with that shit. The giant IBMs with the reel-to-reels all going. And then it gets Cronenberg. <laughs> and then it gets Cronenberg. That that scene is so the funny. It's realize, not my favorite scene, so I'm not like spoiling my pick for later. I do love that scene, though. The moment you realize everybody sitting in a chair is rigged to be pulled through a, pulled through a wall. Like, yeah. <laughs> the mo- no, the moment that that one tech, the moment he goes, you don't have to do that. Nothing's going to happen. It's just all internal switches going. I was like, shut up, shut your mouth. <laughs> You've killed yourself. You idiot. <laughs> so like, I, I like that. Like they definitely played with like the humor on that one too. That, that was really nice. He just you don't have to stand back, man. Out of the fucking phone. He's just like, Oh, look at this concept. Yeah. I think concept is just too damn clean, man. I think, uh, what'd you say? The barn? Yeah. I only went with the barn because it was different. It was, full of weird shit. Yeah, oh, you're talking um, about Benjamin Pierce's barn? The other scanner yeah. that he goes to with the giant head? That was my That's pick true. too. When they're yeah. sitting talking in the in the internals of the giant head and stuff and everything. It was so cool. I loved it. Yeah. yeah it, it barn was, was really my interesting. pick too. It 
give that little bit of a futuristic vibe about it, just something different, especially with a Cronenberg film. Um, yeah, I, I, it was the first thing that came to my mind. I mean, it just really stands out, like considering everything else is just basic building structures pretty much. Um, I like the interiors like, what- on that uh- – not to cut you off, but uh, what's that place where they co- manufacture the ephemeral? Um, shit, something That's amalgamate. Um, something carbon. Oh, I can get it. Keep going. Uh, bi- yeah, biocarbon amalgamate. Oh. Yeah, no. If well, I, I nearly ended up actually going with the, um, the the office where they have the final fight scene, just because yeah. just how big it is, um, and it really gives them all this room to fucking play mind tricks and shit, whatever they Cinema. fucking scam each other. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, so yeah, it makes me think of the um. The big fancy office from Old Boy, where the main character meets the villain at the end. If you, if you, have you guys seen Old Boy? Ah, the South Korean movie. I was, it's because it's him like working his way up through that whole like industrial area to get to the the top of that building and get to the like old dude from his old school or whatever. It's like the big villain guy, and he gets there. It's the whole big giant office. And everything with like the waterfall and little water features going throughout it and everything. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to spoil old boy in a, an episode that's not about it, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't want to say that. The office is cool. It just reminded me of that scene. It kind of had the same big bad vibe. Fuck. We good? Favorite scene or shot, boys? I went with uh, the whole mind battle between our leads. That's fucking intense. And from what I do recall, it has some of the most iconic shots in horror history. We only got to look at the fucking movie poster. I'm about to uh, say. Um, it, it just really has a great use of uh, practical effects, um, and they're portrayed exquisitely on the screen. It, it definitely is a hard scene to watch with that body horror fucking going on. Um, it, 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 it's actually fucking beautiful in a Cronenberg world. This is like, this is the start of Cronenberg and just going all out with fucking human anatomy and all this shit. So, he sprayed fucking everywhere. Was yeah. he, did anybody else find that one scene where they have that scanner group chat? Uh, <laughs> melodramatic as fuck. <laughs> where they were all sitting in uh, in Kim's house yeah. and they're all having the little and thing and then the guys without like this fucking hit squad anti-scanner hit squad coming in with shotguns because everyone's like oh no no, this is the head explosion (laughs) movie no this is the guys with shotguns every scene has a guy with a shotgun and this arguably i had this uh conversation with the boys pre pre pre-show what has a better shotgun prep scene Jurassic mm. Park or this one? We've already mentioned the whole fucking Nick did a whole Jurassic Park uh, reference earlier to that actor. Oh, clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just thinking about it. There's a lot of, quote, shotgun prep scenes in this film, especially with uh, nearing the climax. It's just, shit. Yeah, Shotgun City. <laughs> Literally just slow yeah, shots of someone just pulling the stock out and he's wrecked. You gotta pump the shot, like the first shell in and everything. Like, it just, there's a whole lot of dudes prepping shotguns guns to be fired <laughs> there's a lot of shooting shotguns as well okay I, I mentioned uh this isn't exactly my favorite scene or anything the one that comes like right after it is um but i did mention when the vans are right next to each other yes. and the one comes in with the hit squad off the they were already not being inconspicuous at all because they literally they pulled in off the sidewalk i don't know if you notice at the start of the scene they like ramp through the sidewalk and then pull up next to them and then all the little port sides of the van go up and a whole just like seven shotgun barrels just come out of the side of this van just start blasting away at theirs uh there's, there's just so many shotguns did can Canada just like you you can only have shotguns in 1981 in Canada apparently. 
<laughs> Those motherfuckers weren't taking any chances. No, but I guess I'll, I'll go into my my favorite scene shot was probably that uh the burning van with him starting to do the prep for the shotgun and the RSO little float burning down and the fire behind it and everything. I thought I had recognized it whenever I looked up the research. I was like, oh, yep, that's what I fucking thought. <laughs> fucking, a. I love the little uh, wherever uh, Revic makes a dude's head explode. And he try to tries to like pass it off like he did nothing. Like trying to walk away. He's like, nah, we're good. <laughs> what happened there? Shit. You okay, buddy? <laughs> like, who is it? Revic's uh, painter dude who tries to fight off everyone at first with his head. <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, I remember got, that scene being so much later into the movie than it is. Right? You've only got Revy yeah. sitting up front in front of an audience, pulling all these fucked up faces next to the guy that he's fucking, he's like, well, he's about to fucking jizz. So it's not kind of <laughs> obvious that it's fucking him. Yeah. Just think of a personal thought really quick. And he goes, <laughs> I think I'm going to go spicy. My favorite scene will have to be wherever he's loading the shotgun. And then uh, Stephen Lack's character uh, takes control of his brain and stops the shotgun blast last second. And then kind of like takes control of that dude. And that whole fight sequence. I think that's pretty fucking well done. And this the whole shot of him getting getting that shotgun ready, I think is pretty rad. I don't wanna yeah. I don't wanna be like, oh the exploding head guy. Back that's easy for the no. next which is effect effect or death. And we can easily say, fucking exploding head guy. You know, it's like <laughs> Mine's different. Mine is different than the this exploding head guy. Okay. Yes. Mine is Revix. Oh. It's the body transfer. Okay. It's the, it's gotta be the body transfer. A it's a it's a huge twist. I I it's been so long since I've seen it, I've essentially fucking forgotten everything about the movie other than I remembered the van crashing and the head exploding. But I remembered the head exploding happening way later into it. I, that was something else I actually saw too uh, while doing the research is that he moved, it was supposed to be later. Time? He moved it back. Uh, HBO Max actually has it. Oh, okay. Yep, it is on HBO Max. I wonder where they source their transfer from. I actually kind of do too. I wonder which like version they got it from and everything. It, it looks really good. Like I'm pretty I'm pretty certain they got it from like the rematch. That was tap. Um, oh yeah, it looks good. Especially that scene you're talking about with the haze on the hazmat yeah. suits and everything in the amalgamate building with all the smoke machines and stuff they all I got like going that on the would bottom be lost in vhs quality probably unless you had like one of those like the, what are they called the fucking like dvi dvh dvi the like <laughs> hd vhs's that yes. they had back in the day yeah uh unless you splurged the fucking four thousand dollars or whatever that would cost you two thousand to get it you probably wouldn't have been able to tell uh but yeah no it, I was, it, it doesn't look bad at all um yeah pretty much but yeah no it's kind of funny that our favorite scenes like bled into each other like that yeah right. but uh uh, yeah, the fact. So, uh, uh, yeah, fucking. Uh, I mean, I got to. We got to give a shout out to the infamous head explosion yeah. scene. Obviously, happy, uh, especially in the first fucking ten minutes of the film. Definitely sets the mood for the rest of the film. Um, and also got to say, like many have tried to recreate shit like this in their films and have failed miserably. I reckon this will always go down as the ultimate head explosion. But I am going to have to go with Mr. Lang. Just to see him slowly fucking perish, his eyes explode fucking everywhere. He's got holes in his face and stomach. And it's just fucking next level. It's fantastic. And like Nick said, the, the fucking twist at the end, I mean, it's got a completely different subject, but it all just ties into a beautiful effect and death. It means so much more. Um, right. Yeah. But like, that's why I called it Revic's death, though. Yeah. It's like Vale's body gets destroyed, but, he but didn't Revic's the one who dies. Black's character being so strong. So whenever he absorbed right. him, he's like, aha! Ah, I'm in. <laughs> I won. <laughs> I did. 
I'm so going to have to agree you... with Nick. Uh, I definitely would have to say the little twist, Revic death thing. Whatever you want to call it at the end is pretty fucking sweet. Of course, the head explosion is awesome. Boys, thoughts on the story? Brody? I think it's great. I think it was something uh, new and different and original at the time. Um, uh, and I think Cronenberg was definitely starting to flex his creativity uh, to new heights at the stage in his career. Um, it's a batshit crazy idea, I've got to say. But I feel that Cronenberg takes this idea and turns it into a fucking mature story than an over-the-top B-movie film. What he was able to do with this film uh, with all that crazy bullshit going on behind the scenes, hats off to the man. Yeah. Hats off to him because he's created nothing more than a fucking horror masterpiece in my opinion. Completely true. Um, It isn't perfect, at least the story itself. And again, that's just due to the constraints that Cronenberg was writing it under the time. I mean, when you're actually shooting the scene, like the last scene that you wrote in the other room while he's sitting there writing the next one like there's only so much you can do with it but I think that what he did with those constraints may have in a way led him to create something a little bit better um, and something that I always point to for this, and I know I've done it in a previous episode, but it's like uh, the team that made the game, the original Silent Hill, a bunch of rejects for that all failed their previous projects, getting forced into a tiny little budget. And it's, hey, you have this many resources, go make something. And they made a masterpiece of horror. I think he did the same thing. You know, he's got, hey, you have your money for it. You have to make it, but you got to make it now and you got to write it now. Under those constraints, what he made is absolutely incredible. Yeah, this film stands the test of time. I think this, the story is absolutely paced well. I think has great, well-thought-out arcs for each character. I absolutely love uh, the Kim character and the Revit character. I think they're extremely memorable. And of course, the way that this movie just... I guess this will flow under the impact and takeaway segment. The way that this movie has influenced countless sci-fi directors and horror directors and honestly created a genre and a franchise. I mean, the Skinner franchise, we'll get into that more as this season progresses mm-hmm. and in future episodes with more se- future seasons but like this film set the tone for so much more to come and like Brody said that that head explosion was often replicated but never perfected like this one was mm-hmm. so it all it set all new levels of gore I mean <laughs> there's just there's just a, a specific way that Cronenberg's body horror makes you feel that I don't think any other director is able to capture or recreate to date. Uh, look at the way his son makes films and just look at his impact on Canadian film as a whole. The guy and this film will live forever. Fucking scanners, man. <laughs> fucking scanners. <laughs> He's the fucking man. I don't even think, I don't think Fly would have been as good as it was if he had not made this and video drum beforehand we had this uh, this talk the other day uh little sidebar here but uh what's better the fly remake or the thing what's better ever remake you know mm. yeah we're completely different subject matters i mean one's romance and the others yeah basically fight for survival just right filmmaking overall like are you, are you talking about like the thing being the remake of the thing from another yep. came from another world or whatever from the 50s oh Okay, you could throw the blob in that, though, too. Yeah. You could have... Oh, man, shit. (laughs) So what you were saying there before, Nick, um, about Cronen... Just off-subject, Cronenberg's the fly. I don't think... Well, he did The Dead Zone before that, and I think that that film was basically his introduction to actually creating a good story, what's telling stories Mm. at at a new level, sorry. So which bled into the fly. Stephen King had a big involvement with that film. I don't know. If, I don't think he wrote the script for it. 
He may have, because I remember this being mentioned. Uh, so Stephen King wrote a book in like 2006 or something called Cell um, that was about cell phones turning people into zombies. Like there was a pulse goes out and everyone who's using a cell phone at that moment, boom, you're like basically a the crazies level zombie. Um, movie was shit. I didn't see the movie. I only re- I read the book uh, back in when I was in like eh, freshman year of high school or something. Um the dead zone is based on the 1979 novel of the same name by Stephen King. So Stephen King did write dead zone. It's you wrote the screenplay. Nope. Jeffrey Bohm, uh, who also wrote the screenplay for Indiana Jones and the last crusade, as well as the lost boys and lethal weapon two and three boys, Brody impact and takeaways. Yeah. Well, I kind of mentioned it there before. Um, I just think, yeah, it's definitely, uh, one that you see every, it, it, I mean, it's, it's really familiar in the horror community. Um, and like I was saying, like when you think of Cronenberg, you sort of immediately think of Scanners, Videodrome, and Fly, and that's pretty much it. Um, so, yeah, I think he – I think taken away by this film and its story, it, it just goes to show that you can create a fantastic fucking film pretty much to not only that, sit there each day by day filling out scripts. I mean, the last film that I know that's ever done that was Joker in 2019. Um, those guys mm. were doing that shit, and that turned out fantastic. But God, I love that movie. I don't think I would like to fucking do that. It would just cause nothing but anxiety for me. I think it'd just be an absolute shit show trying to film a film while writing and filming. So, yeah, I, I just think what he was able to do with this film at that time, there was a lot of pressure on him, and the man can fucking direct you have not seen this film, treat yourself. Yes. Boys, let's rate this. How many exploding heads out of five are we giving it? Brody, let us have it. I'm going to have to go with a 3.8. Nick? 4.2. I'm going to give this a 3.5. That is an LCE score of 3.8 out of 5 for 1981's Scanners from director David Cronenberg. We say check it out. Give it a watch. We enjoy it. You will too. And next week's episode is 1966's Django from Sergio Corbucci. And this will be our first of many to come spaghetti western films. And I can't wait to talk about it. Boys, thoughts on Django? Django. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be actually uh, interesting reviewing this considering it's spaghetti western and not a horror film for a change. But I am looking fucking forward to it to expand a little bit more on the genres of um our B B movie tropes. So yeah. Hopefully hopefully you will enjoy it. I'm definitely looking forward. Definitely looking forward to this one. You guys haven't watched this one yet? I haven't seen the original Django. I've seen like the Dollars trilogy, like Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, Good, the Bad and the Ugly. Oh, oh, hell no. (laughs) Any reason to talk about Italian films, I am all aboard, especially Franco Nero movies. I love him as an actor. And this and Kioma I think are just fantastic. Mm. And I can't God. wait to you see his backup in his coffin. So, boys, thank you for joining me on another episode of Lights, Camera, Exploitation. Hope you enjoyed it. We certainly enjoyed doing the show. This is the pod boss, TJ Bowser, signing off. This is your doppelganger, Kanga Banger, all the way from fucking down under saying, I'll catch you next week, mother lickers. Slick Nick from the middle of the butt fuck nowhere in the country saying, thank you for listening. Love you all. Mwah.
it, it is kind of funny to Michael me. Michael Ironside has a smaller dick than Stephen Lack, and then he's just like, oh, no. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> that, that's why he was huddled in the corner with his jacket over. <laughs> Whatever Kim comes in. <laughs> Don't look at me! <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to be the blooper reel. Okay! Uh. <laughs>